Greetings, everyone. This is Graham Walker coming to you from the Independent Institute here in Oakland, California. Uh, I'm welcoming you all to our Lighthouse Briefing today. Uh, in our Lighthouse Briefings, we invite our key friends and sometimes some supporters also to uh, join us for basically a front row seat on how we are analyzing some of the topics of the day. Uh, so I welcome everybody who's joining us via this Zoom webinar. And uh, we are grateful to everybody who's a member of the Lighthouse Society joining us today, and also grateful for those of you who may yet be about to become Lighthouse Society members. So uh, today we're going to continue the conversation we began three months ago uh, with uh, Phil Magnus of the American Institute for Economic Research. Welcome, Phil. Thanks for having me. So glad you're here. Uh, you were so interesting last time. We wanted to have you back again. All right. So, if, you know, you better be boring today. Otherwise, you're going to get another invitation. <laughs> so so uh, Dr. Philip Magnus uh, is uh, a research fellow here with the Independent Institute, also senior research fellow at, as I said, the American Institute for Economic Research. Um, he has taught public policy <clears throat> at George Mason, been affiliated with the Institute for Humane Studies. Um, and uh, he's been a pretty prolific author. Your latest book, Phil, is called 1619 Project, A Critique, right? That is correct. Okay. Um, and a critique suggests that you're not entirely enthusiastic about the 1619 Project. Uh, strangely, I've uh, kind of fallen into the place of, uh, of being one of the public voices that uh, is bringing it to uh, some scholarly challenge to the claims that are made in that project. There you go. That's the way. And of course, you're well suited to doing that because you are, in fact, an economic historian with a PhD in uh, that area. Uh, and so uh, that's not today's topic, but anybody wants to know more about the 1619 Project ought to check out your book, which is available, I presume, on Amazon and is also on AIER, if I'm not mistaken. But then there's all sorts of other things that you've written, such as this book, which I want to get my hands on, Colonization After Emancipation, Emancipation How Lincoln and the Movement for Black Resettlement. Uh, especially interesting uh, in view of June, Juneteenth, uh, which right. is we're honoring today. Uh, you've had five uh, important articles in the Independent Review, our own scholarly journal, uh, also published in the Journal of Economic History, Journal of Southern History, Journal of Business Ethics. You've been seen on Newsweek, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, etc. So, okay. Right. <laughs> uh, and in, with all that expertise behind you, you're an interesting person to talk to about uh, the pandemic policy, uh, well, I call them quagmire that we've been in for the past year and more, uh, and the twists and turns that have occurred in public policy. Um, how did you get interested in following this whole subject, aside from the fact that you didn't want to get sick? Well, uh, you know, first and foremost, I'm a, da a data scientist. I crunch numbers, I look for patterns, and I try to interpret them over time. And it turns out that, uh, you know, epidemiology uh, operates in a lot of the same area. Uh, I'll be the first to admit that I'm not an epidemiologist. I don't have uh, primary training in that background, uh, but I do work in statistical analysis, including some of the tools that were brought in to bear by the epidemiology modelers themselves. And if, if you like follow the history of where these tools came from, quite a few of them uh, originated actually from economics and econometric techniques that were built up in the 1970s and 80s to study uh, trends in uh, you know the national economy's uh, indicators and directions it goes, and uh, also to study how economic interaction occurs, and they were adapted over by the epidemiologists uh, in later years to look at the way that pandemics spread. Oh, so you understand their tool set. 
Uh, oddly, I've worked in their tool set. Uh, yeah, interesting. So, yeah, it's just one of the quirks of uh, uh, operating in social science is uh, a lot of these mechanisms are, are, are shared, and you also start to see some of the pitfalls, the errors that people make. Right, exactly. Well, I guess that's what we're going to talk about largely today. We promised our friends we'd talk about Dr. Anthony Fauci and some of the um, you know twists and turns in his approach to the pandemic. Uh, just as a reminder, you know, uh, Dr. Fauci uh, still serves as director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease. Um, he's been in that role since 1984, chief medical advisor to the current and former president, um, also advised every president since Ronald Reagan, um, and President Bush awarded him the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Now, <clears throat> okay, a lot of people know those basic facts. <clears throat> also, many people realize that, was it just, I think, last week, Phil, that Dr. Fauci, um, who, you know, at age 84, certainly has a lot of experience in these matters, or 81 rather, a lot of experience in these matters. Uh, he did make the interesting claim that to oppose or disagree with him on pandemic policy is to oppose science. Right. Did he really say that? What did he, what did he really say? He did. It was an odd interview. And, and, and interestingly enough, he's kind of been uh, shoved aside from the TV uh, for the last couple of days. And I think part of it's the fallout from that interview. Uh, he basically had kind of a, what I refer to as his Senator Palpatine moment, where instead of standing up and declaring, I am the Senate, he basically went on TV and said, I am the science. And if you contradict me, you're engaged in an assault on science. So it's a, it's a proclamation of his own authority, and it's done so from a very hubristic perspective. Well, I mean, he, he, he probably felt wounded by a lot of the criticism, and I guess he had to sort of reestablish his cred, right? Yeah, including uh, <laughs> asserting it in a very authoritarian fashion. La, la science, c'est moi, to quote uh, a famous French king. Yeah. So he really did say that. Um, and uh, there's been other things come out recently, such as the trove, interesting trove of emails. Um, you know, many of us who don't follow things as closely as you do, we heard tell about these emails that were somehow strange or potentially incriminating. Um, uh, but we don't. I haven't spent the time. I haven't. And many of our friends, you know, wish that somebody had actually read the emails and looked at them. Have you looked at some of those? And can you tell us something about them? I have. I've poured over uh, the emails. No, we should oh, I, I knew you would have done. I knew it. Several thousand pages. So I by no means uh, looked at them all. I don't think anyone has looked at them all. I, I just strategically tried to focus on key dates and the, uh, yeah. the decision making process to see what he was doing. And, you know, if I were to summarize one theme of Fauci, when he goes on TV, he's always uh, acting as if he's speaking from authority, if he has the scientific expertise, if he's the one guy that knows how to guide us through this thing. And if you read his emails, it's the absolute opposite uh, story that emerges there. Here is a guy that's confused. He's self-contradictory. Uh, he's vacillating all over the places. There are people that are giving him important information, and he's just kind of uh, brushing it aside, not taking the time to read it. Uh, if you remember uh, about six months ago, Scott Atlas, who was the other coronavirus task force member under President Trump, uh, made a statement and said that, you know, you, you put these papers, medical papers in front of Fauci, and he wouldn't really read them. He just kind of threw them aside. And here we have documentary evidence of that going on in his email chains as well. Well, some uh, people thought that Scott Atlas was just being kind of, you know, persnickety or something when he said that about Dr. Right. Fauci. But it turns out that some of it is very much documentedly true, right? That is absolutely the case. So, Scott Atlas, I hope you're listening. <laughs> 
Yeah, so um, it revealed that he, in fact, uh, set aside evidence that didn't seem to fit the themes he was publicly presenting. Um, did it shed, did the email shed any light on the strange flip of which we discussed three months ago in his advocacy, non-advocacy of mask wearing? Did the email shed any light on that? Yeah, uh, there, were, there were several uh, very revealing emails on the subject of mask. And if you remember uh, what we talked about three months ago was uh, his public appearances. He went on 60 Minutes back in March of 2020 and said, the public doesn't need a mask. Uh, uh, don't go to the store and buy masks. Uh, just uh, leave those for the medical professionals in the hospitals. And then, uh, you know, just two or three months later, He's not only advocating everyone has to wear masks at all times in public, outdoors, indoors, then he gets into double masking, triple masking, all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was a major flip-flop because here's the guy that uh, established himself as the spokesman for mask policy, first says, do not wear a mask. Then he does a complete 180 and he's on the other side of the issue. And yet when asked about that by the media, they throw him softball questions. He says, oh, well, uh, I was just... Uh, uh, kind of telling a noble lie, a noble fib to the public mm, because we were mm -hmm. afraid the hospitals were going to be running out of masks. Well, it turns out if you look in the emails themselves, that's not his big concern at all. He actually does genuinely believe around February and early March of uh, 2020 uh, that masks simply aren't uh, sufficient to do the job of making a meaningful dent on this uh, this virus. So he had so, one so, email. So later he yeah. came up with the rationale that it was a noble lie to Exactly. That's strange. I mean, he could have made himself look better had he simply said, yeah, I thought one thing and then I thought something else. But right, instead, or the, the new evidence came in uh, and, you know, we can debate what that evidence is. But instead, he was trying to present himself as like this mastermind that was always in command of the situation. And I think that's a, a real theme for Fauci that's played out across his entire political career. And I will call it a political career. Yeah. Now, that's very interesting. I mean, I did mention it's 40 years going back to advising Ronald Reagan even. And, you know, you do wonder uh, how a public career like that plays out and what the dynamics and forces affecting his decision making may be. And you can shed some light on that before you do. And I'm going to ask you to do that in just sure. a second. But before you do, let me remind our participants today uh, that you can indeed on this private webinar today, uh, which eventually we may be able to make public, you know, as a recording. But today it's just you all with us on the line, you can ask a question directly to Dr. Phil Magnus. Um, you can uh, go down to the bottom of your Zoom screen, webinar screen, where it says raise hand, and you can click that thing. I will see your little raised hand and I will open the mic for you to pose your question directly uh, to Dr. Magnus. That's really, um, I encourage you very much to do that. Uh, if you are shyer, um, you can click the thing at the bottom that says chat or Q&A, and you can type some questions in there. I'll see those as well. Okay, so I very much encourage our friends. And I see a list of them in front of me here. There's just a bunch of people. Some of them I know personally. Feel free, friends, uh, to chime in. Okay, so back to Dr. Fauci. <clears throat> Many years, um, and, and you know, you try and we wouldn't care, of course, about this subject were it not for the fact that he has had such profound influence over, you know, the rules that govern our lives. So we do care and we want to know what accounts for, you know, the twists and turns in his career. What do you think has driven him uh, in one way or another over the years? I mean, surely not everything he did was dubious. He must have done some good stuff, too. You know, he's, he's a very accomplished scientist. He's a, a doctor that has written uh, multiple influential medical publications. Uh, and, I, and I don't doubt him when he says that he got into this line of work 
uh, by wanting to do better for the world, by yeah, wanting I believe to that. study mm-hmm. diseases. And I, I still think he's motivated by that. At the same time, though, here's a guy that is a career politician. Uh, he's been in this office for almost 40 years. Uh, he's the single highest salaried employee of the entire federal government of the United States. Wait a um, minute. Does that mean he gets paid more than the U.S. president? He does. Uh, I, uh-huh. I think he has a salary almost in the in the half a million dollar range per year, uh, which is just astounding for uh, a federal bureaucrat, taxpayer salary. Uh, so, so this is a guy that is a, has been the quintessential Washington insider for 40 years. So I, I liken him uh, career-wise to a figure like J. Edgar Hoover, who was uh, head mm, yes, of the FBI. Yes, good, good comparison. Very yeah. good comparison. Because Hoover himself was drawn aside by some of the political incentives of his situation. Absolutely. You know, and Hoover's a, he's a guy that got into it because of law enforcement. He wanted to fight crime. Uh, probably had all the right motives for doing that, but he became this entrenched figure that uh, that started to actually uh, kind of pull the strings behind the scenes to manipulate policy. And that is always uh, in the direction of keeping his agency well-funded and on top and in power. Mm-hmm. And you see the same thing in the NIH. So Fauci's kind of like the J. Edgar Hoover, the NIH. Here's mm-hmm. a guy that controls billions upon billions of dollars in budgetary resources. And, uh, you know, he, he obviously likes his job. He, he stayed around after the normal retirement age. Right. And he, he also seems to like the limelight that comes with it. Yeah. He, well, he, you know, he he seems to be pretty good in front of the camera, except that he's gotten himself into trouble a lot of times yeah. in front of that camera. So I guess, you know, it appears <clears throat> that Dr. Fauci, you know, impelled by good motives, but very much in a politically sensitive, politically defined role, um, has responded to the various political incentives that he's faced um, exactly. and has sought to do one thing or the other. Now, normally you would say, well, what that means is that you would like toady to whatever president is currently in office, you'd want to say whatever he wants you to say. Um, and that would be a, like a political explanation. But in Dr. Fauci's case, it's interesting. Um, some people say that he is one of those noble prophets who, <laughs> who impelled by the common good, spoke truth to power during the Trump administration. Um, I don't think you share that interpretation. What can you say about that? I definitely do not share that interpretation. I think he's a very smooth and skilled political operator. And we've seen these guys, uh, people of this type from history, not just J. Edgar Hoover. Another one I liken Fauci to uh, was the first uh, chairman of the Food and Drug Administration and basically the creator of that agency, a fellow by the name of Harvey Washington Wiley. Hmm. And he was an academic that came out of Purdue University uh, around the turn of the 20th century, was hired uh, to basically create and then ran the FDA. And he did so, he always presented himself as, well, I'm a scientist, I'm running experiments in my lab to make sure that that food is safe. Uh, But if you read his correspondence, you look into the actual documents, uh, he's wheeling and dealing and cutting uh, uh, favorable regulatory arrangements with with companies that are basically sending him bribes and and sending him free products behind the scenes. And, uh, you know, one company will call and says, well, uh, my competitor is really eating into my profit margin. Uh, can you run a study that shows that their food is adulterated and it is dangerous to the public? That and, really and happened? Would, that absolutely happened. Wow. Uh, there's ample documentation of it. And I'm not saying Fauci's that, quite that level of corruption, but what you do see with him is an operator in the bureaucratic sense that knows where his budget comes from, knows where his political power comes from. And if you're in one of these long-term roles that transcends 
uh, not just one administration, but uh, but like the past four or five, six of them, uh, you, you, your priorities change. You, you, the thing that's rewarded in the political spectrum of, uh, of bureaucratic funding is people who come in and act like they're in control, act like they know the solution, act like they have an answer to every crisis that comes along. They're authoritative before the camera. Uh, they have a path or a solution they can give to Congress, the president, everyone else that's involved in the day-to-day decision-making that says, I can manage this pandemic. I can manage this crisis. And that's what Fauci has learned to do over the past 40 years. Uh, the problem is he doesn't always have the information that matches the hubris that he's asserting when he's in front of a camera. <laughs> yeah, right. I see that point. And, you know, what's interesting, when you look at a, a, a public role like that and the, the, well, temptations maybe, or at least incentives, there certainly is an incentive to play up to power. But in, in the case of the Trump administration, I think what we really uh, learn from Dr. Fauci's um, apparent uh, conduct there is that power, the power that seems to matter, certainly to Dr. Fauci, um, and maybe in a lot of other ways too, is the power wielded by um, the keepers of mainstream or elite opinion. He was not toadying to Trump. He was, at least how we say, responding to them. That is to say, the real long-term power holders that control a role like his is, in fact, elite opinion, mainstream universities, civil service, the press, and so forth. Uh, and he responded to that incentive. Very much so. I mean, you got a guy that was doing basically fashion shoots on the covers of, uh, of magazines that specialize in clothing. Well, I don't know if that's fair, Phil. I mean, if he really wanted to do a fashion shoot, he would have probably looked a little better for the shoot. But we'll, we'll leave that aside. We'll yeah, leave that aside. You know, <laughs> going to the baseball game, throwing a pitch that uh, is aimed at first base instead of the catcher. It's, uh... <laughs> okay, we're, we're um, going to turn the corner and talk a little bit about modeling, which is part of this whole uh, thing here. But let me remind our friends on the call, I'm still eager to have you toss me some questions for Phil Magnus in the Q&A or raise your hand using the raise hand function of the Zoom webinar. Oh, before I change, turn the page, I am got a question from a friend of mine named Sally. Sally, uh, you can open your mic. I've just opened your thing up and you can pose your question to Dr. Phil Magnus. Just unmute yourself, Sally, and you can go. There. Okay, I unmuted. Great. I, I wanted to know, I believe you're involved with the Great Barrington Proclamation. Is that correct? Uh, so I attended the conference where that was issued. Okay. Um, I live in Great Barrington, so I'm very I, curious a neighbor. <laughs> about what, what that was all about. And I, I was aware of, of the nature of it, but I'm interested in what actions were taken from that and were they effective? So, so the proclamation, uh, for those that aren't aware, is a, uh, it came out of an academic conference we hosted at AIER back on um, it was October 4th, uh, 2020. There's a very small gathering of, uh, of three epidemiologists from Harvard, uh, Stanford, and Oxford uh, that came in to propose an alternative to the lockdown um, answer to the pandemic, basically an alternative to Fauci, an alternative to, uh, to what the government was doing. And uh, this is based on epidemiological knowledge of, uh, of some very well-published experts that have been studying similar types of disease uh, outbreaks for, for decades. And what they did is uh, they, they tried to sketch a, an alternative path to dealing with COVID uh, that they called focused protection. 
And the idea here is rather than locking everyone up in their homes for months, uh, shutting down businesses, schools, uh, ending life as they know it uh, uh, for the vast majority of the population, uh, you, you adopt basically targeted measures for known vulnerabilities. So the nursing homes, for example, were known very early on as being a, a point of vulnerability. Uh, people that have other diseases, comorbidities, so hospitals and things like that are points of vulnerability. And if you do a, stra a strategic focus on those areas of society, it also allows the remainder to open up. Uh, so that was basically the advice there. Uh, we didn't do this uh, conference to uh, to specifically achieve anything like legislatively. It was more putting a uh, an alternative view out there in the scientific debate. Uh, and, you know, it, it's important to point out here that the initial press reaction to the Great Barrington Declaration <clears throat> seemed largely to be, well, those Great Barrington people, they're anti-science. They want to throw everyone to the to the to the dogs of uh, virus uh, vulnerability. Um, and in a headlong, heedless pursuit of he herd immunity. That's how your declaration was spun. Yeah, it was it was caricatured. And uh, even to the point, so uh, John Ioannidis, who's another well-known scientist at Stanford, had an interview recently where he mentioned something of the Great Barrington Declaration. He was not involved in the conference, but he did some comparison to look at the scientific credentials of the main signers on uh, on both sides, because there was a competing uh, petition that was put out called the Jon Snow Memorandum. This was the pro-lockdown side. These were the people that were presented by the media as having the mainstream viewpoint of uh, of how we deal with the with pandemics. And, and what Ioannidis did is he compared, uh, you know, if you look at the scientific signers, the Great Barrington Declaration's signers tended to be uh, higher credentialed, had more uh, publications and citations in the medical literature. Whereas if you look over in the Jon Snow memo uh, side of things, uh, some of the credentials were a little sketchier. I'll give you an example, Chelsea Clinton signed the Jon Snow memorandum as a, uh, a public health expert. Oh, so uh, yeah, wow. the, the the great medical expert Chelsea Clinton versus uh, scientists at Oxford, Stanford, and and Harvard that actually work on on diseases and epidemiology. That's that's too too much even for parody. Good grief. <laughs> okay, <clears throat> so we've got uh, a uh, question coming uh, from John. I'm just opened up your microphone, John. If you unmute yourself, uh, then you can. There you go, John. Okay, thanks so much. Uh, yeah, the, the Great Barrington Declaration really, I was amazed at the vitriol with which it was received and, uh, and the partisanship. And, and more recently, you know, more concurrent with that is the, is the whole uh, discussion around the origins of this virus, you know, um, lab leak versus natural. And, and if you don't, if you're not on the right side of that question, the, the, the responses you get, my question for you, uh, Dr. Magnus, is, is this historically unique or did this happen in previous pandemics? Was it such a, such a suppression of debate as, as we've seen recently? Yeah, I think for modern times, it is a, um, a level of suppression of debate that, that actually harkens back uh, to things we haven't seen uh, with regular occurrences, so something like the late Middle Ages, when uh, when there's a proclamation from the king or the church or the emperor that says uh, this is the science, this is the astronomy, and everyone else is a heretic, um, it, it, which is actually kind of frightening. Although you do see in other areas, uh, whenever there's a politically fashionable position assigned uh, to one side of a uh, 
of a scientific debate, the media very much goes all in for that one side. So the the, the climate change discussion is probably the mm-hmm. most recent example. Right. Uh, some of the tobacco science, even in the uh, the nineteen eighties and nineteen nineties, fell into that uh, that trap. Um, and, it, and so a lot of times these things resolve, but the the oddity of the uh, of what happened after the Great Barrington Declaration, and, and you know, as you noted, we were just bombarded with vitriol. Uh, the very first week after the petition went live, uh, there were actual scientists and journalists on the other side, the pro-lockdown side, that started flooding our site with fa- with spam fake signatures. Uh, so, uh, they basically to create a news story out of it. I actually did statistical analysis and found when they were coming in, they all spiked at the exact same moment about three days after the petition wow. when a journalist had issued a call and said, hey, flood this thing with uh, with fake signatures. And then 24 hours later, the Guardian's running a uh, an article about the fake signatures that these journalists created themselves uh, to try and discredit the petition. So it's, it's juvenile games. You know, your comparison with, um, you know, medieval science versus religion is extremely um, illuminating, I think, because on this subject and others, as you noted, climate, uh, and I can think of several other major public controversies, really the the functional shape of the, 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 the conflict, it feels and looks very much like the old one versus what we, we now look back on and say, oh, those, oh, those benighted people in the Middle Ages, they were all religious and they didn't want to welcome science. Well, it turns out that other things other than explicitly uh, religious doctrine can acquire the spiritual prestige of what was once held by religious doctrine. And once those things acquire that spiritual prestige, then it becomes very difficult uh, to hold on to a much more abstract commitment to evidentiary science and falsifiability. That's a hard thing to to feel strongly in love compared to, you know, your spiritually significant commitment to whatever it is, climate alarm or uh, one thing or the other. Throw Fauci into the middle of that where he's proclaiming, I am the science, basically. Yeah, there Uh, you go. It's the same thing. There's an authority figure. That's not a debate. That's not inquiry. That is someone flexing their power. Uh, We are just about to turn to a question, a live question from Joe. Joe, I'm opening your mic so you can unmute yourself. I know he has a question about comparisons that you were talking about before. So, so Joe, if you're there, go ahead, Joe. Yes, uh, thank you, Graham. Uh, good afternoon, uh, Dr. Magnus. I have a question regarding the lockdowns in terms of where the data is today and in current situation. I was watching the French Open over the weekend and they still had um, people exiting at 10 o'clock at night and curfews and the whole bit. And I just wonder that, you know, we have Florida as an example, we have other states as live examples, but yet like they, some of these states and countries don't seem to have gotten the message. Is that, the, is that because of the dogma behind it or do they, is it the censorship? I mean, do they not know the, the current standing of what the data has been saying? There's a distorted lens that data has been presented to the public, both by the media and by uh, government agencies uh, to basically support one side of the political debate. And it's not anything that's like by conscious design. It's rather people are, they, they cherry pick their evidence. So reporters that support lockdowns cherry pick studies that support lockdowns, even if they're or actually weak, kind of you could even. You could even be more gender and say, well, they tend to gravitate toward the things that they may not even consciously be choosing it, but the things that they are gravitating toward reading. Right. So the selection biases throughout all of this discussion, 
And one of the things that's kind of, it's, it's really exposed is the flimsiness of statistical analysis. Uh, we were already going into this pandemic with a novel virus of having very limited uh, information and, and good data. This is something that uh, a few of us were pointing out from the beginning is even though stats seem to be flying every, every which way, very little of those um, uh, statistical data points were reliable or tested or uh, unbiased in their collection mechanism. And as the pandemic progressed, that improved, improved quite a bit, but there are still people operating under assumptions that are, uh, if not months, even, even a year or more out of date. And when you build that into some of your models, you build that into uh, some of your epidemiology predictions, such as the Imperial College one, it sets us on a path dependency where the model can only give you the results uh, that are as good as the inputs that were put into it over a year ago. And, uh, you know, we're, we're at a state right now where you've got these models that are still generating uh, increasingly absurd, increasingly uh, far-fetched, catastrophic predictions of what would happen if, say, the United Kingdom reopens or France or Germany fully reopens, uh, if Canada removes its border restrictions from the United States. That was one I was looking at today. And they have all these catastrophic predictions uh, that are no more grounded in evidence than they were um, in March 2020 when some of the initial mistakes were made. Uh, thanks. I think John uh, has a follow-up question. John, if you want to unmute yourself, you can, unless I've misinterpreted your cue here. <clears throat> John, are you ready? If so, unmute. <clears throat> uh, John can unmute. There's John. Oh, he was. Okay. Not quite sure. Okay. Well, I've got a question in writing here <clears throat> uh, from one of our friends, Perry. Perry asks, hasn't public health messaging generally, even before COVID, been more concerned with short-term clarity and certainty rather than trying to convey a more complex understanding? Does this help explain the power of unfortunate and even unleading, misleading messages such as stop the spread, <clears throat> wear a mask, stay home? And this is an interesting dynamic I've looked into. Uh, so I'll give a partial answer of yes. I think uh, the messaging uh, in past, uh, major health events, epidemics and pandemics and other outbreaks has focused on uh, very short term measures that we can do to, to fix or address the situation as it's unfolding. But there was also a, a pronounced feature of the literature before COVID-19 that urged caution in taking bold, aggressive steps. I'll give you two examples. In 2019, fall of 2019, the epidemiology team at Johns Hopkins University, basically the main statistical uh, source for most of the pandemic that, that, that we were all looking at daily, uh, issued a report on respiratory in influenza pandemics, where they very strongly cautioned against taking bold measures like lockdowns or mass quarantines uh, based on information that wasn't uh, complete. That was, uh, they, they basically said this is something that's prone to abuse. It's something that isn't warranted by the evidence and could create more problems than it actually purports to solve. Uh, and the WHO also had a report out in 2019 that, uh, that basically argued the same thing for uh, respiratory viruses. Mm -hmm. uh, so there was always this caution that was built in to uh, bold, sweeping, short-term measures to kind of counteract that political pressure. 
and that all flew out the window around March, uh, mid-March 2020. Instead, it would seem to be supplanted by this precautionary principle style of argumentation, uh, which, you know, it operates the, under the idea that, hey, if there's a, a a one in a trillion chance of an asteroid coming and hitting Earth, uh, we should uh, operate under the assumption that we need to take measures to protect ourselves from the, the that one event on the extreme tail. Mm-hmm. And the same thing was like, uh, well, if, the, if this pandemic turns out to be as bad as the worst case scenario hypotheses happen to say, then we must do anything and everything without question to make mm-hmm. sure that that doesn't happen. Wow. <laughs> okay, we, we've got another question from... <clears throat> Uh, Joe, you want to follow up, Joe? I've un, I've opened your. Yeah, there you go, Joe. You're free. Thank you. Just uh, on that same light, do you think in the future, if there is another pandemic, the response? You think the government will be able to get away with the response like this pandemic? Certainly, people that are going to try. I hope uh, Anthony Fauci is long retired by then. Uh, but uh, I, I do fear that certain politicians have seen this as a moment where they realized what they could get away with. On the other hand, there has been a growing uh, level of skepticism about several of these policies, right. uh, especially in parts of the United States where that are open, like Florida. Uh, Texas followed that to uh, Georgia, other states that opened early. And if you remember the predictions, they were all uh, – uh, as Fauci and, and Burks and all of these people on TV were saying that uh, if Florida reopens, uh, they're going to be ground zero for, for a COVID catastrophe uh, within a month. A month comes and that never happens. Texas reopens, they're going to be ground zero for a catastrophe in a month. Never happens. Meanwhile, states that remain locked down, like New York and California, actually had worse case numbers and worse death numbers than some of the places that reopened. Okay, to be uh, so, fair, California is doing better now. Now it is now, but uh, you know, like back in January, it was spiking at a a, a level. And so on. We hear you have people like Gavin Newsom and Andrew Cuomo have actually started to reopen up their states uh, because they saw what was going on in Florida. They saw what was going Mm -hmm. on in Texas and Georgia, and you know, you 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 can only uh, keep the 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 illusion up for so long before people start saying, "Wait a minute, uh, I have a cousin in another state, and they're just back to normal." Yeah. Now, I want to point one thing out. We're talking about the growth of skepticism toward the self-presented experts. And that skepticism, as it turns out, you know, regrettably, sadly, it turns out that skepticism has proved far more justified than any of us would have wished. And and Phil Magnus's work and many others has has given the uh, evidence for why that's so. But but just notice what that means. Um, I'm just kind of thinking out loud here, but with all of you, that the... um, Solution to the problem of uh, inadequate, <clears throat> maybe not fully honest science is not less science, it's more. Um, the solution to you know bad assertions <clears throat> is knowledgeable assertions. And so we need more knowledge, not less. And Phil Magnus's work, among others, illustrates the fact that when your experts and your intellectually sophisticated people seem to be going astray, the real antidote is not simply skepticism or, you know, kind of pushing it away in a huff, but rather digging deeper <clears throat> and becoming more educated. And of course, that's what we are all about here at the Independent Institute. We we cultivate and assist experts like Phil Magnus so that uh, actual evidence can be brought to bear against uh, experts who are on the wrong track rather than just, you know, 
turning away from experts in a huff. I'd rather refute the experts than turn away from them in a huff. So I appreciate you, you doing that. I really do. Uh, there's a few more questions that I sure don't want to miss. <clears throat> uh, so uh, Jane posed this interesting question. <clears throat> Earlier, I asked, Jane says, if you thought vaccination would be used to differentiate or discriminate among us. You answered no, because it's not obvious who's been vaccinated as it is when identifying those wearing masks. That's a good point. Since then, Jane says, we've seen proposals for vaccine passports and other methods of discriminating among us. How do you foresee this vaccine controversy playing out from here? This Thanks, is a, a very tricky issue getting into the vaccine passports. And, uh, you know, one point that I, I constantly make is vaccines are a, an amazing innovation uh, that rapidly mobilized in response to this pandemic. Uh, but there's also politicization of the way that that uh, uh, that innovation took place. And now we've gotten into the territory where, uh, you know, you basically have two strategies if you want to get vaccines rolled out and, and make them available. Uh, the one strategy, though, the one that I favor, the free market one, is the one the Great Barrington authors advocated from the beginning, is to make vaccines widely accessible, mm -hmm. uh, provide sound information, urge people to make that voluntary step themselves, especially if they're vulnerable, if they're elderly, or they're in, in other groups where uh, this disease seems to be a very severe uh, risk for, um, for, for their well-being, uh, because this is a, a, a tool that can mitigate that risk. So that's the one approach. The other approach is the command top-down, centrally planned approach that unfortunately we've seen all too much of. Uh, this is mandates coming from the government. It's like, well, if you want to do this, you must get vaccinated. And then they get even uh, uh, stricter in, in, in what they're, they're calling for. This is what we saw in New York State with an attempt to impose vaccine passports. Um, there are some people that have argued that vaccine passports are uh, a, a private solution as well. I don't see that happening because government has a tendency to co-opt uh, mechanisms like this. Right. Uh, even if you had uh, a, a well-run, well-designed vaccine passport system coming out of the private sector, uh, that's just a uh, that's like throwing up a, a flare signal at the Congress saying, "Come in and uh, and co-op this through a bureaucracy and let's impose it nationwide." Uh, so I worry about that kind of a, uh, a a tendency, the political creep, the regulatory right. capture that's coming right. out of it. So that's uh, where the biggest danger I see is. Yeah, Bob Higgs called that the ratchet effect. You know, with every exactly. crisis, there's more politicization and more government power. And so, you know, of course, from time to time, situations do arise when there's a temporary emergency and, you know, somebody has to take the lead. Maybe, for example, <clears throat> the Operation Warp Speed was a justifiable push. Uh, and, but whenever a government resorts to those kind of temporary uh, pushes, everybody needs to be extraordinarily vigilant to prevent that becoming a permanent politicization of the issue. And unfortunately, our, our history, especially in the 20th century, illustrates the way, in the early 21st, obviously, illustrates the ways in which crises become occasions for the permanent politicization of various functions. And when things are politicized, when they run not on consumer choice or the power of persuasion, but they run on government mandate, um, things are gonna go wrong. It's just the way it is. Uh, we've got, okay, here's another question. Oh, this one's, this is a hot potato. This is from our friend David. I think David from Monterey, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, he says, since the Japanese government has apparently decided to prohibit foreigners from attending Tokyo Olympic events, 
as the Wall Street Journal reported today. Should we pull our support from the Olympics? <laughs> well, let's just say I'm not sure that your expertise requires you to take a position on that, but you, you can take a stab at it if you want. I guess what I will say is I tend to view the Olympics as I, I do most other publicly supported sports boondoggles. Uh, they are uh, usually operations that are, are, are lucrative to people that are in the business of building stadiums and, uh, and amenities and, and local municipalities and city governments. And the worldwide broadcasting rights. Entirely. So there, there, there's money involved in all of these things. Uh, unfortunately, they're, they're, they're often sold to the public. You know, like when a new sports stadium comes into town, uh, when there's a proposal, it's like, oh, the public should pay for this because we're going to get all these economic benefits uh, that come from it. And even under the best of circumstances, those benefits are never realized the way that they're promised. Take something like the Olympics, and then you start to say, well, you can't have tourism to the Olympics. You can't have international visitors to the Olympics. Uh, that's, that's not only uh, continuing the boondoggle effect, it's, 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 it's also eliminating the one thing that could potentially offset and recoup some of the public expenditures. Uh, so now there's no longer even an economic argument for, uh, for investing public monies in this uh, uh, large sports extravaganza. So David, that sounds kind of like a yes to your question. I think so. <laughs> uh, Phil, I think we have time for me to um, just delve into one other dimension that I really wanted to ask you about. Um, we had talked three months ago about, you know, the, the scientific and epidemiological modeling that had occurred on which a number of these public policies were based. Um, can you tell us about how the modeling is holding up uh, since we last talked? Absolutely atrociously. So I've focused uh, the majority of my attention on the most influential model, and that's the Imperial College model from Neil Ferguson out of London. Uh, this was the guy that, if you remember him, he he urged lockdowns on the world. He convinced both the Trump administration and Boris Johnson in the UK to adopt them in mid-March of last year. And that was like the signal to every other country. Well, the Americans and the Brits are doing this, so uh, uh, we, we need to lock down. Uh, he was also the guy that like two weeks later was caught sneaking out of his house to uh, to go visit his mistress. Uh, so he wasn't really abiding by his own lockdown measures. Uh, but for some reason, this guy has remained uh, the leading modeling voice that's influencing governments across the world. Uh, what's happened since the last time we discussed him is that we hit the one year anniversary of the Imperial College model, both the one that the US and UK used, and then about a week later, they released a model, uh, their similar model for every country that they had data on, so almost 200 countries. And they all predicted the exact same catastrophe. Uh, that happened on March 26, 2020. Uh, on the one year anniversary, March 26, 2021, I sat down and I compared the performance of what the projections were into the Ferguson model versus what actually happened. Uh, and not a single country on earth came close to fitting his uh, his scenarios. Uh, even the worst case scenarios, even countries that, that have had really bad runs like Belgium, uh, the Czech Republic, Hungary, uh, Peru. These are countries that were hit really, really hard uh, by uh, by the virus and hit hard during lockdowns. Uh, even them, they only come close to uh, uh, to, to, to some of the uh, uh, the scenarios that don't really fit the parameters of what they did in terms of policy. And then on the other end of the spectrum, some of them are just absolutely absurd in the level of how wrong the predictions were. Uh, there were some countries that uh, he overstated 
um, the number of deaths that they were expected to incur, even under lockdowns, by tens of thousands of percentage points. Uh, one and case rem remind us, million. who was it again that made these predictions? Ferguson of Imperial College, London. Okay, so I get confused with the UK personality. There's also there was the Dominic Cummings, who was so he, he's the he's the government guy that uh, yeah okay. <laughs> got in the mix of all that. So um, you also have compared um, not only with the UK but with other countries on uh, how things have been going um, with uh, you know the uh, modeling and so forth, the catastrophes. I just wanted to draw people's attention to this really interesting piece you published. Uh, just, I guess, last week, if I'm not mistaken. I'm gonna pull up a copy of it so people can see it here. Imperial College predicted catastrophe in every country. <clears throat> then the models failed. Um, very much worth looking at. This is at your own website, AIER.org. Uh, so comment a little bit about the other comparisons. You actually go to that article, there's a downloadable spreadsheet so you can see where your country uh, falls on the, on the predictions. And you can see uh, just how off uh, Neil Ferguson's model happened to be, and as I said, every single one of them is uh, is just uh, catastrophically wrong. Uh, but what we're seeing here is also a theme, because the errors occur not only in countries that are hard hit, uh, they also occur in countries that did not have a bad run with the coronavirus and, and everything in between. Uh, this is where the outlier cases of countries that did not lock down or that used a lighter touch. So the famous examples are Sweden, which is hit hard by the virus, but it's, it never locks down. Right. Uh, Japan, which is not hit as hard by the virus, at least until very recently. Uh, it also doesn't lock down. It remains mostly open. Uh, South Korea had a light touch approach. Taiwan had a light touch approach. Uh, these are countries that were championed uh, for various reasons as success stories, but, uh, but they didn't have anything approaching lockdowns. And it turns out that the Ferguson model was uh, was basically predicting uh, COVID apocalypse <laughs> coming across mm -hmm. the uh, every single one of these cases, and it didn't matter what policy they adopted, uh, the outcomes that they had just weren't anywhere near what he was modeling, and that just tells you right there it's a it's a real world, real time live experiment of of the performance of the models against their claims, and nothing is lining up, and then you start asking the question, okay. This is the guy that advised uh, world governments on uh, what to do in response to the coronavirus, and we followed his advice and are still following it a year later, and yet every prediction he had, he blew. Why am I only reading about this on the AIER.org website and not on the Washington Post? <laughs> because the Washington Post has, uh, has been uh, very credulous in its repetition of talking points coming out of Ferguson's unit at Imperial College. Uh, as have politicians, politicians that bought into this, the last thing they want to do is admit that they were wrong. That's uh, amazing. That's so it's it's sunk cost, it's path dependency. I did actually catch, and you can read it in this article. I caught Imperial College itself, its PR office, in an outright lie. Oh, because they uh, they got into some trouble before the House of Lords. Ferguson was testifying. And uh, the Viscount Ridley, uh, Matt Ridley, some of your readers may know from his, his books uh, uh, on scientific matters, asked Ferguson why his model failed in its predictions for Sweden. Okay. And then Ferguson answers him and says, well, we never predicted Sweden. That was another university that adapted our model to Sweden, and they must have gotten their parameters wrong, so you can't blame me for that. 
And Imperial College sent out tweets and press releases saying that uh, Professor Ferguson never modeled Sweden because uh, the claim was uh, that this model showed 85,000 deaths in Sweden uh, at a time when they had only hit a couple thousand. And even today, they're, they're I think they're mm -hmm. at 14,000 right now. So uh, he had catastrophically wrong over prediction for Sweden. And Ferguson said, well, I never did that. I take no credit for that. Well, it turns out if you go on the Imperial College's uh, website, their own website, you can pull up the data appendix to these reports when the models were released. And there it is, along with every other country, the model for Sweden. And it says something like 84,500 deaths are predicted in Sweden. Uh, Neil Ferguson's listed as the corresponding author on this study. And his entire team is, is uh, a part of the publication. Good gracious. So, yeah, you have the university <laughs> itself lying to cover up its own work. Now, to, for clarity's sake, I just want to point out that you're referring to Neil Ferguson of Imperial College, not Niall Ferguson, also also an English scholar and uh -huh. economic historian who's at Hoover Institution. These are two different people, and the one, N-E-I-L, Ferguson uh, at Imperial College is the one that uh, Phil Magnus is pointing out. Well, you know, we could go on for a long time here. I don't see any more last-minute questions from our friends. <clears throat> I encourage them to follow your work. Also, um, I, I'm grateful. Uh, that really, uh, Phil, the people on this call are key among those who make possible the work of the Independent Institute, thus supporting your work and many others. Um, Independent Institute is the place to go, really, for um, sober, well-considered resistance to some of the political and even scientific hysteria of our era. Uh, for example, you can see behind my shoulder, our recently published book, Hot Talk, Cold Science, which is very much worth considering. <laughs> Here it is right behind me. Uh, on the whole question of climate catastrophism and trying to bring to bear a more sober assessment of the evidence. You're doing that with regard to the, the epidemic. Uh, we have partnered with others such as the National Association of Scholars to really emphasize the importance of falsifiability and testability in science. Um, a commitment <clears throat> to evidential science is very important, really in every field, uh, not just the physical sciences, also the moral sciences. Uh, we live in a universe where there are hard facts, both physical and moral, and we ignore them at our peril. Uh, we try and make that clear throughout a variety of disciplines, especially economics, and we're grateful for your work in economic history, Phil Magnus. We're very grateful, and thank you for all of our friends who joined us. Uh, please come back for our next Lighthouse Briefing. And of course, you can always go to our website, independent.org, um, and renew both your information banks and uh, your support for us as you see fit. Thanks very much, everybody. Have a great day. Goodbye from the Independent Institute. Take care.